I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. For me, Christmas is defined by its festive plants. By the mistletoe we hang, the Christmas trees we decorate, the red poinsettias in the supermarkets, and the holly in our wreaths and table decorations. It's a time of bringing a taste of the outside in and turning our homes into an illuminated wonderland. So as we approach the most festive time of the year, I wanted to share a recipe for a plant-filled Christmas and one that also serves the health of our gardens and ecosystems. In this episode, we'll be returning to Bristol with Naomi Slade to hear how she decks her halls with fingers from the garden. We'll then be making our way to the Frenchay Christmas Tree Farm to get a feel for life at the busiest point in their calendar. And finally, mistletoe. Whilst you may have stolen a quick kiss under it at Christmas, did you know that this green stunner is actually a parasitic plant? At the end of our programme, we'll be exploring the curious world of parasitic plants, including this festive favourite. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. We're sitting in the Royal Fort Gardens, which is a Grade 2 listed Repton landscape in central Bristol, looking up at the mansion with the physics building behind. And it's a beautiful gorgeous winter day. That's writer Naomi Slade. We begin with her in a quiet corner of the Royal Fort Gardens, a series of grounds around the University of Bristol. Inspired by the landscape, she's sharing her blueprint for what you can do in and out of the garden for a green and festive Christmas. What I love about this space at this time of year is that it's established quality. It doesn't collapse, there's nothing flat about it. Not only is the landscape all hills and gullies and dales in, in microcosm, it's full of mature trees. There's a beautiful mulberry, there are cedars, there are plane trees. It's a collector's garden, it has botanic qualities. So there's lots and lots of interesting things going on. And the beautiful forms, the forms of sort of unusual oaks and things, it doesn't really matter that it's winter in this garden because it's just a holding pattern. It's, it's like this today, you know, tomorrow the crocuses will be coming, the day after the amelanchy will be in flower, the aces will be springing out leaves. It's a garden that really does hold its, its character and its charm irrespective of time of year. One of the great things in spending time in 
a garden that is this well thought through, is it gives you lots and lots of ideas for how you can use your own garden and plants in a festive sort of way. So there's obviously creating wreaths, but cutting stems, cutting branches, decorating the house with foraged garden things. It's much better, I feel, to look out of the window and go, oh, I've got a bit of this and I've got a bit of this, or loads of this, and bring that indoors. Because Christmas can be a very commercial time of year, but I think when it comes to plant material, it's worth looking closer to home. It's a more sustainable thing. You know if you harvest things from your garden, it's like a Christmas present to the world to create sustainable Christmas decorations. I have a very gardening approach to Christmas. And when I wasn't growing up in Bristol, I was growing up in rural Wales in a garden that my grandmother had planted. And she did that thing where in the late 60s and early 70s, she planted lots and lots of dwarf conifers. And 30 years later, they were very much not dwarf conifers. So I had the advantage of having lots and lots of really interesting, fabulous evergreen foliage to play with. So that's certainly something. And then there was the year that my mother got excited and managed to cover the entire chimney breast with holly. So that going very, very large with forage materials and garden materials. I've always wanted to get back to that year. It just looked phenomenal, just covering everything in holly and ivy berries and that sort of thing. Bringing the outside in, you know, decking the halls, going entirely medieval on, on the whole Christmas spirit. If you've got the plant material to do so, it's, it just looks amazing, it's so brilliant. To make festive arrangements, there are lots and lots of bread and butter plants. There's holly and there's ivy and there's fir. Of course there are plants like privet. But thinking about cutting great big juicy stems of Mahonia, for example, then you get that fragrance as well. Even by Christmas, if you cut uh, stems of flowering plants, particularly early flowering varieties, you can bring them inside and they'll hold for a few days. Or if you keep them in a cold garage, sometimes you can manage to force things like fruit blossom in time for Christmas. For me, I like to go with the bread and butter varieties, those solid evergreens, but then add details to that. So I'm a big fan of long-lasting crab apples. I've got a Melis sargentiana um, red sentinel, which I plant in basically every garden I ever make because it lasts through until February. You can cut it, you can use it for arrangements, you can make wreaths out of it. And again, dog roses, the rose hips, particularly from my very rural elements of my childhood, they will last for a very, very long time unless the winter weather gets really, really cold. So you can use them in swags, you can put them in, in table decorations, in cut flowers. And then there's the stems such as of course, there's teasels and there's honesty and there's hydrangeas and all the things that you ordinarily think of. But there's also plants like umbellifers, hogweed or other more sort of beefy umbellifers, robust grasses and clematis seed heads. So going out and seeing what's there for the, for the basis of your, of your wreath or your decoration or your, your decking the halls activities and then thinking what's going to bring that little bit of extra brightness and colour. Well, foraging in the winter garden is something that can take you all the way through, 
from the last leaves to the elegant pointed buds or the fattening flower buds of fruit trees, you know, lovely lichen stems or, or larch. Larch is just so showy, it's so bold with its repeated cones. If you can get stems that are covered in, in, in lichen, covered in moss, giving that sort of naturalistic quality is particularly lovely. If you're going to create a, a bouquet, greenery is nice. I'd always include sarcococca as a sort of a lovely dark green base. And then the stems, we call them red sticks in our household, but um, Cornus alba, Cornus uh, sanguinea. Red sticks are sort of multi-purpose winter decorations, so you can use them to add height and pizzazz to a vase arrangement, or you can twist them into, into the bases of a wreath to go on the door. Or actually, if you're going to create a, a tub of bulbs or series of tubs of bulbs to go outside the window, sticking stems, coloured stems, into them while the plants are growing can add height and interest and a sort of a holding pattern before the snowdrop or the crocus or whatever it is that's coming up does its thing. So it extends the interest. I think we can make the most of Christmas in the garden by making sure that it's ready, so making sure it looks cheerful. So encourage the wildlife, put the foods out there. You, know, you want to be watching the birds having a great time as well. Curate the scene so you've got everything which is looking good up close to the window so you can look out on it. You can put out lights and, and, and decorations. Um, I do like a twinkly light. I'm a bit of a fan, but it's important to think about the impacts of that. So solar lights obviously are a more sustainable option there. And even if you're going to put up swags of fairy lights or decorate your house so that it outshines your neighbours by miles. One of the key things to remember is about light pollution. So having lights on when it's very dark over a long period can disrupt the circadian cycles of all sorts of animals. It can disrupt insects, it can disrupt sort of birds and, and, and mammals. So if you are going to put lights out, remembering to turn them off before bedtime or putting them on a timer so they go off automatically is really, really important. So... Uh, this is garden tips for a greener Christmas. So a few lights, a few swags of, of, of forage material, a lovely wreath on the front door, decking the entrance, and making sure that when you're looking out at it, it's as enjoyable as it possibly can be. Thanks there to Naomi Slade. This autumn, Naomi published RHS The Winter Garden, an excellent book with her top tips for getting the most out of winter. The book includes details on creating your own holiday decorations, by the way, so do go check it out. The link is in our show notes. Naomi mentioned her love for creating wreaths and floral arrangements and using material from the garden to decorate her house. One of the great things to do is to grow your own winter decorations. Gourds, for example, ornamental gourds are easy to grow. You just treat them as you would pumpkins. And Chinese lanterns, an interesting plant for the herbaceous border, they're also easy to grow. And, of course, dried flowers. Many flowers can be grown and then cut and dried and used for winter decoration. Not to mention seed heads. Alliums, for example, have the most spectacular seed heads like bursting fireworks. And the fluffy seed heads of clematis are also a very enjoyable thing to use. 
You can even grow your own pot plants by sowing seeds in the spring of solanums and solenostemons, which are also known as coleus, and growing these all summer, and they'll make lovely decorations for the windowsill later on. Something that's good for the children is sowing seeds of those winter fruits. Citrus, grapes, dates, for example. These can all be sown in a warm place, and they'll make interesting house plants. And as Naomi mentioned, the bread and butter plants of Christmas are evergreens. And perhaps no evergreen is more emblematic of this time of year than the legendary Christmas tree. It's no wonder that about 7 million of these trees are sold each year here in the UK. And growing Christmas trees is a wild business, one that depends entirely on a very, very short sales window. So next we're travelling to Frenchay Christmas Tree Farm to hear from owner Simon Morn about life on the farm at this time of year and the secrets behind doing this sustainably. I've got thin ones, I've got fat ones, I've got short ones, I've got tall ones, I've got sparse ones, thick ones, weird ones, perfect ones. And everyone seems to find a home because everybody takes a different view on what the perfect Christmas tree is. There's been a lot of argument about what's best, a real tree or an artificial tree. And I think anyone who gardens or grows things for a living will be able to say it's a no-brainer, obviously, you know, which is better, a, uh, a living product that's entirely biodegradable or something that comes from a factory thousands of miles away made of completely artificial or um, synthetic materials. My name is Simon Morn and I am a Christmas tree grower. My company is called French A Christmas Tree Farm, just north of the city of Bristol. I planted my first Christmas trees while I was still at university, or more accurately, my father did. And um, I was studying plant science at the time at university, or botany, and it piqued my interest. So when I came home to see what he'd done, I immediately spotted the first mistake and he planted them all about 20 centimetres apart. But the seeds of an idea were already in my mind. In 1998, I think it was, we visited a Christmas tree farm in Marden in Devon, and I guess we saw what we could potentially achieve. So we bought a few Christmas trees off the bloke there called Hans and started selling a few trees literally from the back of a lorry. We got a tiny bit of bemused interest from passers-by, but we didn't sell many of our trees. But the next year we did it again. Um, and now I am selling between two and a half thousand to three thousand trees per year. One of the first things I considered quite seriously when I went to the Christmas tree farm in Marlden was I didn't want to grow trees their way. And their way was the way most Christmas tree farmers grow trees, and that is scorched earth policy. You plant trees in the ground and you don't let anything else grow around the trees. So it's basically bare earth and Christmas trees. And I said, I'm not going to grow Christmas trees that way. I'm going to let whatever will grow underneath a Christmas tree grow. Because from university, I knew that Bare soil is a bit of an environmental disaster because you get soil runoff, you get erosion, you get nutrient leaching, and I just seemed the wrong way to go about doing it. So in the summer, we've got all this little long grass and flowering between the trees, which are varying in height between 
one foot tall up to about 20 foot tall. It's a real mix of sizes and shapes. So in the summer, it's actually a really lovely place to be. It's like a sort of cross between a forest and a meadow. And as a result, we are bringing in wildlife that may not have been present before. So we get woodcock, for example, in the plantation. We get birds of prey that will hunt among the trees, uh, owls, bats. And as the seasons turn, it, it begins to change. You get all the spiders coming out in September in the autumn and they spin their webs between the trees. And, and I have to go through and, and, and prune all the trees. And I'm always getting spider webs in my face. <laughs> I don't really like spiders, but I've, I've learned, to, learned to live with them. It's hard to imagine the sort of chaos that's going to be coming uh, once the autumn is close to an end and you realise that your lovely sort of solitude is about to be broken. We started by planting the classic Norwegian spruce, which is Picea abies. Um, they just need a sort of slightly acidic soil that's fairly moisture retentive. And so we put in 6,000 Norwegian spruce and then from talking to other Christmas tree growers, we began to diversify. So we started to grow the Nordman fir, which is the Abies Nordmaniana, which is the classic non-drop tree that most people seem to want these days. And then we started to buy in some Abies Frasery, which is the Fraser fir trees. They're quite a narrow tree with sort of silvery foliage that's retained well on the tree. They grow pretty rapidly. I mean, they take about six years to harvest as opposed to eight years. They shape well and they just look, look really nice. So we planted about 8,000 of those and then Nordman fir and then we gave some blue spruce a go. Pote omerica was another one we tried, uh, Serbian spruce. And we still grow all of those. We tried growing the Korean fir. That wasn't so successful, didn't really like our site very much. Although the, the Korean fir is a beautiful, makes a beautiful Christmas tree if you ever get a chance to, to, to grow one for yourself. But we just keep trying different things and seeing what the customers like and what grows well. There's an element of bonsai, I suppose, to growing a Christmas tree because you don't want it to run away and make a forest tree. You want to keep it small and clipped like a bush. Norwegian spruce are the simplest. You can just take a pair of shears to a spruce and just give it a gentle clip all the way around. Or if you're feeling um, brave, you can get a pruning blade, which is a bit like a sword very sharp sword and you can just swing it around the tree trying not to um, remove the fingers of your left hand as you do so but I never felt brave enough so I, I've got a few pairs of nice quality shears and I spend um, a few days going around the entire field and you can prune all the spruce that way so you just need a pair of shears firs tend to be pruned with a pair of secateurs so it's a bit more of a time-consuming job and we will fork prune those. So any gardener will be probably familiar with fork pruning and you basically removing the centre shoot. If you're really, really organised, you can do bud rubbing and you can rub off the shoots before they even started to grow. But that requires a little bit of organisation. I get a huge satisfaction out of growing the perfect tree, what I would consider the perfect tree. You know, that's not too wide, a nice sort of church spire shape, reasonably full and Every year, I like to think I'm getting a little bit better at doing it. We've just come through our busy season because people will start visiting from the farm from about the third weekend of November. And it's carnage, really. I mean, a lot of the trees have been cut down. There's branches everywhere, bits of stumps and logs. I mean, there's still loads of trees growing because, of course, I've got to have a sustainable harvest. I've got, like, about eight years 
worth of trees, all at different stages. We've just taken out maybe an eighth of the entire field. This year I probably employed 15, 16 people. And then over the weeks, because we're all working so hard, there's quite a camaraderie that builds up. Um, and then suddenly the, all the work comes to an end and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> it's all over. And, um, and we all feel a bit sad about that because we've all built up a bit of a relationship. So one evening we all go down the pub and um, sort of say our farewells for another year. I've been at it for 24 years now, maybe even 25, and I am still learning. And I love getting caught up in that excitement with my customers. You begin to see everybody's Christmas trees up in their windows and you know you've done something right. Thanks, Simon. People are often concerned about the sustainability of their Christmas trees. Should they buy a plastic one, for example? Well, according to people who've researched this, a plastic tree is more sustainable as long as you keep it for more than 10 years. But after that, of course, it has to be disposed of in landfill. It can't be recycled. Real Christmas trees, on the other hand, are natural products that can be broken down and composted and are shredded and reused in various ways in the garden. But of course, there's always the option of growing your own Christmas tree. You can buy potted trees, for example, and uh, bring them in each year. And you can trim them to some extent to keep them shapely and to stop them getting too big. But don't cut back into the old wood that hasn't got green needles. Sometimes people plant out their Christmas tree after Christmas and can't bear to dig it up again. And as you walk around for suburbs, you can see occasionally spruce trees growing to considerable sizes in people's back gardens. And of course, these plants will have lots of emotional attachment to them. And so people let them get bigger and bigger. It's rather sweet in a way, but eventually they will outgrow their welcome. Another Christmas classic that can easily be grown, but often isn't, is the mistletoe a parasitic plant caught up with a kissing tradition that we all know and love. And so for our final story, in honour of the mistletoe, we thought we'd dive into the world of parasitic plants, looking at how they grow and which ones actually add to your garden. So without further ado, here's Alex Summers, who has a particular penchant for these botanical freeloaders. Hi, I'm Alex Summers. I am currently the head gardener for Carmarthenshire and Ceredigion, which is out in deep West Wales. And that means that I cover two main properties, Deneva and Clanachiron. I, th I think with parasitic flora, because it's so alien to how plants normally tackle life, I think that's generally what's pulled me in. Equally, they tend to be things that can be quite overlooked and I think that sometimes when you're out it adds something extra to look for as well. It's difficult to explain why I'm particularly interested in one group and not another one but I think it is that I find them odd and I think that draws me to them. We can break plants really into essentially autotrophs so the, how we think of most plants they're green they use chlorophyll to photosynthesize. Photosynthesis, in essence, as a chemical reaction, is using sunlight and carbon dioxide and water to make sugars. But in the case of parasitic plants, they tap into another host plant to steal some component that allows them 
to not have to extract that from the environment. So for many parasites, what they're actually taking from the host is just water. But in some of them, they're taking, also they're taking the sugars and the other nutrients that they require. So in the case there, they may, may have a reduced photosynthetic capacity, i.e. they don't really need to do as much photosynthesis because they're stealing sugars and other stuff as well. It simply works on a situation that I need to take this, so I'll take this. And that means that for some parasitic plants, not necessarily for many parasitic plants, they can be fatal, i.e. they can kill the host. So, for example, the witch weeds, Striga, which is a real problem genus in Africa and other bits of the world, but Africa creates massive issue within certain crop species because they not only do they attach in and reduce the vigour of those crops, but they can in part kill the plants that they are parasitising. But equally, you might get parasites that, that carry on happily. So mistletoe, you know, so for example, you see one shrubby little mistletoe in a tree, it's doing very little damage to that tree. And even though parasitic plants can seem very alien and not things that you might imagine would be ideal for a garden, they're absolutely something that would be ideal within most people's back gardens, depending on the species and depending on what you're trying to do. I think many gardeners and, to a wider scale, landscape managers are actively looking to use yellow rattle, so Rhinanthus minor, to manage grass and other vigorous forbs within grasslands so that they can increase the biodiversity of those spaces. So they essentially use it as, a, as an ecosystem engineer to, to reduce that vigour and then allow you to increase the species diversity of those grasslands. Uh, mistletoe is an obvious one. I mean, if you had a couple of apple trees, why wouldn't you want to grow mistletoe? And you don't just need apple trees. I mean, the amazing thing with, with mistletoe is that it's got a really diverse host range. I think I heard somebody was recording the number of different host species they saw it on in the UK, and mainly woody tree species. I think they were up to between 60 to 70 species, which shows that you can grow it on a whole variety of, of different tree genera. It looks cool, it adds something extra to the tree, and then at this time of the year, I mean, here at Clanachiron, we're busily making wreaths. It's a great decoration at this time of year. You know, it's not plastic, <laughs> which is a, another benefit, you know, as you're thinking about those Christmas decorations. So yeah, it's definitely an achievable one. So if you want to grow mistletoe, firstly, you need some seed. So if you can find a location or somebody who has a bit of land with a tree with mistletoe on it, of course, get landowner's permission and get some fruits of it. So once you have those, then you want to find a suitable tree. You know, that can be a lime, an apple. Rosaceae tend to be very good, so if you've got a member of Rosaceae in your garden, then that's ideal. You want to find a branch that's about the thickness of a pencil or slightly thicker. The thickness of a finger is, is ideal. And then what you want to do is you want to take the mistletoe berry and you want to gently squash it on the top side of that branch. And, and then the seed will naturally adhere with the viscous fluid that's around it to the tops of the stem area there. And then you just leave it. And the one thing that people tend to think you need to do is cut a little notch in the stem or something like that. That's the one thing you really don't need to do. Literally, the seed just needs to be stuck on the branch surface and it's smooth barked species tend to be the best ones to go for because I think it's easier for the for the seed to implant its horstorium down through the bark and into into the tissues of the of the host plant but yeah it's very easy it's well worth giving it a go and then 
I think some of the other ones that are weird and wacky and fun to do, things like Orobankis and Toothworts, where I think if, if you're somebody who's really into plants, and I could absolutely see why you might want to grow that within your garden. It adds something interesting, a talking point, something to enjoy. So there are many native broom rapes in the UK, and some of them are weedy species. The most obvious one that comes to mind is the one that you see in most botanic gardens, which is uh, ivy broom rape, because it busily and happily grows on, on ivy. And with those, you just get a seed pod and sow the seeds in and around the base of, of an ivy plant and leave it, and water will wash those seeds down in and amongst the root area. They will germinate and give it a year or two, and you should hopefully see an inflorescence or a flower stem formed. To pretend that it's complex and difficult it is an absolute lie and I think that's the other thing is that I think because these things are so odd we have a tendency to think that it's so difficult to grow them and actually for quite a lot of them, like many things, they want to grow so as long as we provide the right conditions they will. From my perspective I always want to get across to people that they are, they're fascinating, that they are not just weird things out there in the landscape, they're things that we can use and we have used. And I think that, you know, mistletoe, how incredible it is that you get this little shrub that grows in trees that's able to tap in, you know, it's a vampiric in the way it achieves the water and nutrients it requires, and that it has all this folklore attached around it because of that. I mean, that alone should be a good enough reason for any of us to want to get out there and have a go. Thanks there to Alex Summers. Before we go, I just wanted to share a few tips on what you can get up to in the garden this week. Happily, there's not too much to do in the garden in the winter, so you can take a bit of time to relax and have a look round, look at gaps and see where you might plant something in the spring, think about what you can order for growing in your tubs and troughs when the winter plants are over, and uh, enjoying looking at all the lovely things, the stems, the coloured stems, the berries, They'll all gradually fade now as spring comes along, so they're at their very peak. You've got a bit of time to look round the garden at Christmas without all the pressure of work and things. And It's a welcome break from the indoors when television gets too much and perhaps you've eaten a little bit too much. That's all for now. From me, Guy Barter, goodbye and happy Christmas. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. 
Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>